So good evening, everyone. It's a great pleasure to be here at the Gresham tonight, and I sh in, uh, it's a great pleasure to welcome uh, Deputy Mary Lou MacDonald. But in a way, uh, I shouldn't be welcoming you because you're at home in your <laughs> constituency in Dublin Central. So it's a great pleasure, and I look forward very much to our conversation. So can I begin by asking, so Ireland's fifth, this uh, podcast series is looking at Ireland 50 years of EU membership, almost half the time we were an independent state. And you've had a lot of EU exposure. You studied, we both studied in Limerick. Uh, you uh, worked uh, a researcher at the IIEA, and of course you were an MEP. And so in, look, in, in thinking about all that, uh, that perspective on Europe, what do you think are, have been the most significant benefits of EU membership to Ireland? So thank you very much, Bridget, and I extend the welcome to you. <laughs> so bienvenue, uh, so, uh, everybody. You're all very welcome, Folcha. Um, so I'm of an age where I don't actually know anything other than Ireland within the European family and within the EEC, as it was, um, and then the, the European Union. So in a way, I am at one of, of generations of people now where you don't have a direct, in your direct experience, point of comparison, the before and the after. But in, in thinking about our conversation today, I think I would identify for, for regular people, for citizens of Europe, the big win, I think, is one of the four freedoms, the freedom of movement. I think the ability to live, to work, to study um, throughout the Union is just tremendous, not to mention to holiday without uh, impediment once you have a few bob in your pocket and you can, you can travel. And when Brexit happened, you know, and when that great rupture occurred, it was very clear to me when I listened to people who are a good deal younger than you and I, um, who absolutely have never known anything other than Ireland in its totality within the European Union. And I heard the level of anger um, and the level of resentment from them because they believed that older generations had robbed them of lots of things, but not least that open European horizon. You know, Italy, you know, to study yes. in Roma or wherever, <laughs> Florence is where you are. And people really, uh, really resent, and to this day, by the way, resent that fact. So I think for people finding the world, exploring the world, understanding the world, and they say, if you wish to see the world, see Europe. I think that has been a big win for individuals. The economic benefits of access to an enormous market uh, are, I think, self-evident. If you look at Ireland of 50 and more years ago, and you look now and you see the level of prosperity, of innovation, the fact that our city, our country now, is a talent hub in so many crucial sectors, you can mark our progress. But I would also say that that hasn't been without its downsides. So for me to assess the European project in its totality, you see the wins, we're women, the win for equality, equal pay for work of equal value. What does it say about Ireland that we needed, you know, another entity to force, to force the hand of the state on that, but that's what happened, so that's a win. You can assess all of that 
But there's a balance in it also uh, in terms of maybe opportunities that haven't as of yet been availed of. Um, I wouldn't say around things that have been lost, but certainly for me, as you will know, um, at times a question mark around how the European journey has gone, the direction in which we're going. So I don't cite that as a negative per se, but I cite it as just a reality of the dynamic, I think, in how Irish people assess the European, and how I assess it myself. We're Europeans, we're an ancient European nation. Uh, we've never been anything other than European, but that, that closer relationship with, with people from across Europe and that ability to move and experience and live and study, I, I just think is massive, massive liberation for, for, as we are called, ordinary people. And also, I, I, I think the, the, the prosperity is often seen in terms of per capita incomes. Ireland joined, we were poor. We were. 65% the EU average in 1972. And for me, one of the most telling statistics was the life expectancy of men in Ireland in 1972 was 67, yeah. and for women, 72. And that's extraordinary. That's, we forget this, I think, just how the prosperity has actually also helped deliver better outcomes, social outcomes and health outcomes for people. Oh, for sure. And, and that's because of lots of things. Of course, but, but not least because of the fact that, it, and the big upside of European Union, but also of globalization more, more globally, is the fact that we have managed collectively to innovate. We have managed to, um, in, in areas of medicine and science and, you know, pharma, we have delivered humanity, science, uh, has delivered uh, in spades and we, we, there is no comparison. I know this from, from speaking to my mother, <laughs> uh, to, to previous generations and they recall in this city itself just how poor Dublin was. So that's great progress, I absolutely agree with you. And yet still in this new prosperous world where oh. all of that has been achieved, a stone's throw from here, there are still pockets of very, very deep deprivation. So isn't that the challenge Absolutely. then for the European project to motor on with the progress, but also to question and say, how do we actually get to that social Europe? How do we get to that point of equality? Uh, and that's a challenge yeah. for us. Um, and I, I will come sure. back to that yeah. because I think it's a, it's a very important question. Uh, in, your, in your Sinn Féin's 2020 manifesto, you boldly state Ireland's places in the EU. For That's, sure. It's very clear within your manifesto. But firstly, the party did oppose membership in 72 and has opposed what I would label broadly as the available Europe. What do I mean by that? Every single treaty since 1970, since Ireland joined, uh, Sinn Féin has been opposing that particular development. And so it's a sense in which that whatever is available, a new treaty is available, that is what is agreed, it's what can be politically agreed, and then uh, Sinn Féin opposes. But then there's a settle into acceptance, and it's the next treaty. So can I ask about that? Uh, the, Sinn Féin has broadly, I think it's nine referendums, mm -hmm. Uh, 
opposed what, what I would call the available Europe at the time. And what it's, it's very important in the context of the EU because these treaties come out of negotiations between, in, in all, you know, between 28 countries, between 12 countries, between 15 countries. And no one, no one country ever gets the EU it, 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 it ideally wants because compromise is at the core of a system like this involving so much diversity and so many countries. So in hindsight and thinking back, should Sinn Féin have opposed Ireland's membership in 72 in that referendum? And are, would you question the opposition to subsequent treaties? Reflect, just simply reflecting. reflecting. No, I think that's that's a very fair question. I would have to say that I was, I think, three uh, <laughs> in, when accession to the European Economic Community. Um, so I, you can understand I didn't have a well-developed nope. view uh, nope. of, of the matter. Um, I'd also say this to you. Um, Ireland is distinct, certainly post Single European Act and the Crotty Judgment, in that we have referendums to sure. decide these matters. So as with any civic or democratic conversation, you don't have a conversation if it's one way. We have sometimes uniquely, although I know there have been referendums in other European states and jurisdictions, sometimes uniquely we have had the public battle for the big idea. Sure. And that brings me to, to your question of the available Europe. And can I assure you, Bridget, through my, my own political experience, I'm as pragmatic as anybody, and I absolutely understand you never ever get it all your own way in any negotiation. We're, we're long enough at it to, to know that. But when you say the available uh, Europe, you see, for, for people like me who are European, who wish to see the success of Europe, I look to core values around social justice. I look to our position as uh, military non-aligned and neutral. Um, I look to us as a small nation, a peripheral nation as we're called, and the relationship with what might be termed the core countries. And you ask yourself the question, so what's, what's the best outcome for us? Uh, and I think that has, is what has given rise very often to the Sinn Féin critique uh, in terms mm. of direction. And do you know what? We haven't always been wrong. We haven't always been right either. So to answer your question directly, membership of the, the European community, the European Union and so on was absolutely pivotal when it came to making peace in Ireland. Yeah. Absolutely. Let's say that out loud. Um, and in more recent events, we've seen just how disruptive it has been and how disruptive it remains when we have one part of the island in and the other part of the island out. Could that have been foreseen in the seven, early 70s? Seven? Maybe it should have been. Maybe it was by others. So let me, let me say that. But we haven't been wrong on everything. Let me give you a contemporary. And I know that's not what you're saying to me, but I'm, I'm kind of thinking out loud as you ask. So let me say uh, something about agricultural policy and climate. All right? So for a long time, the common agricultural policy put a premium on intensification and scale because that was the smart thing at the time. And everyone thought this is, and the farming community, in fairness to them, measured up and went, went along with that. We now discover in our times as a contemporaneous fact, we are now in climate crisis, and we know that that level of intensification and so on 
was not good for the place that we call home, was not good for the planet. So you can argue the toss here. Europe got it right in terms of the support for agriculture, and this country benefited enormously. But now we're at a juncture where we say, we also got it wrong. And the question is, how are we going to actually mediate that and fix it and bring farming and agriculture with us? No, and and yeah. I fully accept the argument on, on CAP, but can I bring you back to the treaties? Because it really, oh, absolutely. Ma it yeah, really matters. Okay. So the CAP was in the Rome Treaty. So yes, I'm aware of that. Yeah. We bought that as we went in. But for example, uh, the Lisbon Treaty, there was a no vote. Mm -hmm. I distinctly remember the posters all over Dublin with, uh, I can't remember the bird, but there was a stake through the bird and it was a Sinn Féin poster that said, Lisbon Treaty, RIP, it's over. Uh, now, it wasn't over and there was a second referendum and the Irish people decided that they would vote yes. And so Ireland is now governed the bit of the EU, the, the, the last treaty was Lisbon. And so what, what was in Lisbon that was so serious for the country and for its future that you didn't oppose it time one, but also the second time? So that's my, it's, so in other words, it's the fact that, that it's opposition to every treaty is what I'm trying to unravel. So in terms of the available Europe, there's a lesson for us that the available Europe can actually change as between one iteration, one referendum campaign and, and the other, because these are political dynamics. And it's a question of who's around the negotiating table, how hard they press for what they perceive to be the national or indeed the European uh, interest. Um, and certainly in the case of Lisbon, there was an issue around the commission, there was an issue around, around the commissioner, there's an ongoing debate, and you see it even yet, uh, in terms of Irish foreign policy, our position as non-aligned and, and neutrals, the growing relationship between the European citizens, that nexus between the EU and NATO, and how we as neutrals fit into all of that. And I think that has been, and I think it will remain until we get something more definitive, and I have a notion of what that might be, um, I think that will always be a sore point for people in the public discourse. And the other thing is this, Bridget, remember, for the politicians, for the academics, for the expert communities, they may say, well, this is the available Europe, but the, the, the democratic, pop, the population reserves the right to say, actually, what's available isn't actually what we want, or it's not good enough, and we want you to go back and try again. And I think it's actually important that you have that dynamic. So I, I think it's so I think at some stage in the future, uh, Sinn Fein will will be confronted with an available Europe that it may have to put to the Irish people in a put to the Irish people in a referendum. So I think that it's what I what I'm trying to get at is that a succession of opposing every treaty because there will be more European treaties. Of course, I don't be. know what will be in them, but there'll be more that that will challenge the party, I think, at some stage in the future. Well, I would hope that at uh, some stage that Sinn Féin uh, will be part of or even leading a government in Dublin. So, of course, that changes, that changes everything. Just bear in mind the evolution, if you like, of the Sinn Féin positioning 
um, in terms of, of Europe is, is a very long one. And the party has gone from, in this jurisdiction, being a very small party now to being a sure. very large party. So things change. Things, and, and there is a, a realism also where you have the debate, um, the, the people make their decision, and then there is a part of which you have to say, well, the people are never wrong, Bridget. I mean, the people are never wrong, and when they make a decision, uh, we respect that. But I, but I would say this to you. Certainly, if we are, if, we're, if we have the opportunity to be the people at the decision-making table, um, we will bring with us our assessment, our view, and our ambition for Europe. And I, my, my political assessment, and this is a political comment about the political actors, not about the other institutional actors, is that at times I don't believe that Ireland has pitched hard enough uh, or high enough on specific issues. But that's, that's my political view. Sure. You don't have to necessarily share sure. that. So can, can I, again, I, I, I really did look at your manifesto in, okay. uh, in 2020. Uh, and uh, what strikes me is there, there certainly Sinn Féin is not a Eurosceptic party. No, That's, no far from it. But when I read some of the language, okay. it could be, and this is something that, that astounded me when I actually looked at the language, I could see some ERG types using exactly the same kind of language. So just to give you... So, to so give for you, example, yeah. For example, uh, return power to the member states, curb the power of the commission, uh, opposing efforts to further federalise the EU. Mm -hmm. And that's genuinely... the caches of this world use the same kind of the same kind of language and i would say that it if i were to put a label on it it's at the sovereigntist end now we've seen what 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 a sovereigntist interpretation of the eu is in our neighboring island i mean that's that's what they went the sovereignty drove and a, a type of sovereignty discourse drove Frost and Johnson in the negotiations. So, can, so I just want to tease mm -hmm. out a little on the federalisation. That, to me, does not mean big EU state. That's not what I'm talking about. But there, I have no doubt that the EU will have to do more together simply because of the nature of the world. And so something that happened in, during the pandemic, which was federal, was joint procurement of vaccines. Now, I can't imagine that that's something that you would oppose, because obviously for small countries, it was much easier to deal with big pharma collectively than not. But that is valid centralization. And as we speak today, they're discussing, uh, the energy ministers are discussing buyers cartels mm -hmm. for energy for gas, because we need it. So, I see a tension between what I, I, I see as a certain language of abstract federalization, curb the power of the commission, return power to the member states, that kind of sovereigntist discourse. But on the other hand, actually, collective engagement in the EU is about real stuff that matter to people, that matter in terms of how we can govern ourselves collectively in this part of the world. So. I'm very struck by that discourse 
of sovereignist, the sovereignist discourse on the one hand and the echoes I get from when I look at people like the ERG, but then on the other hand, the actual tangible centralization that I've seen in the last couple of years, which is really about the pandemic and, uh, and more generally. So do you see an evolution, a further evolution in Sinn Féin policy on, on this, you know, the language, the lang the discourse? Well, I, every discourse will evolve. It has to. I mean, it, it, everything in our lives is about change, advancement and development. So I would be personally very, very disappointed if I thought for one moment that our thinking, um, that our views, that, that they would not develop deep and, and move on. But just to, to, to try and maybe respond to your observations, which are very interesting. Uh, if you try to understand us and understand our worldview through the prism of the caches and others of this world, you will be hopelessly muddled forever because we come from the far end of the spectrum. So for us, it's not a question of national chauvinism. It's not a kind of an imperial sticking out of the chest or you know, splendid isolation. We, don't, we, we are an island people. Our connectivity psychologically, emotionally, culturally, and economically is absolutely core. But we are also Democrats. So here, here's the, my, my take on federalism. We believe that at the heart of any democratic system is the power within the state, accountable to your population, for the raising, the varying of taxes, and for decisions around where and how those taxes are spent. So therefore, there is a dilemma in respect, respect of fiscal controls or parameters at a European level that say to a, a member state in the event of, to make it concrete, perhaps a housing crisis, well, that actually, no, there are controls and measures beyond your control that you have to adhere to despite what's happening uh, domestically. And I know there are outs and there are caveats in, in and that, but I'm trying to deal with a, a lot of what you've said to me. So for, for me, the, the issue has not been ever uh, one of saying that we don't cooperate, that we don't work together. That, that would be patent nonsense at any time and absolutely untenable in the world that we live in now, just untenable. However, there is a structural issue, a governance issue, where we have to ask ourselves at what point and what are the things for functioning democracy to thrive, for that not to get lost. What are the things that properly must remain? So just to extend that out, you will note on the issue of corporate tax, which was a sore point with our European partners for a long time, Irish politics across the board, I think without exception, it was very clear in saying our corporate tax rate is a matter for us. I would be very much against any notion that that would be our other taxation powers in toto finding their way to Brussels. Not because I have an allergy to Brussels, but because I am absolutely aware that in the final analysis, I as an elected, I am answerable to the people who live in these districts. And it's not a satisfactory answer to say, well, we're terribly sorry, and quote chapter and verse of rigmaroles of rules, if you have people who are living 
in poverty or if you have a big social need that has to be addressed. So some of this can be accounted, can be accommodated of what I'm saying to you in kind of notions of variable geometry and different speeds of Europe. And we've seen that. We've seen different, not just Ireland, but others opt in, opt out. Um, but I think it will be forever a fundamental and a necessary tension, a very necessary democratic political tension around the advancement uh, of Europe, how much Europe, how far. And I would say very clearly, the European integration project should only go, can only go as far and as deep as it is democratically mandated. And I think to go beyond that, I think could cause all sorts of problems, foreseen and unforeseen, further down the road. And I, I fully agree with you there, but the, the, the thing about the world we live in in Europe and our governance systems is politics, economics, culture, society begins at home. Absolutely. But no longer ends there. Sure. And you can't just think of democracy in terms of conta the container of the nation state. Democracy has also got to have that extra layer and level because politics is taking place at that extra layer and level. And for me, the interesting thing was, uh, say, in the, that I saw was to curb the power of the commission, whereas in fact the commission is one of the protectors of small states. So it's 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 that more. And, and I wasn't arguing that you were taking your policies from the ERG, but yeah, rather, no, but yeah. rather, and, and it is something I think to think about, rather that the language is not that dissimilar. And so I think in, it, it would be very damaging to Ireland if we went down a road of ideas of absolute sovereignty in a world of deep interdependence. And we've seen the experiment in our neighboring island, and it's just not pretty when you try to undo the ties that bind. And so it's more, I'm, I'm just in a sense. Yeah, no, and I, 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 we are a diddum on, the, on that fact, that's absolutely. And I, I, I would go further and say that our, our interdependence, the, the, our, our multilateralism, of course, goes way beyond the European Union also. The world does not begin and end uh, in Europe or the European Union. Absolutely. We have far wider obligations in the international system. And I think it is, I, I, but I, it is my fundamental contention, Bridget, to support the multinational lateral institutions that we need to live good and safe lives. You have to mind and take care of the fundamentals of the democratic dynamic at home. And that's not to try and contain. Look, anyone who um, talks to particularly younger people, and I've got, I've got teenagers and young adults myself, they're not going to be contained. I mean, they're, they're going to, they want the world, and they should have the world. They should see the world, know the world. But we, they, they also want to know that in their place, that when it comes to the fundamentals of how this place runs, that you are not completely robbed of things that the average reasonable person would say, our government raises, varies uh, tax and makes the big decisions on spending. And Ireland's partitioned, as you know, and we know from the north of Ireland, when you don't have those basic economic levers in your grasp, just how 
difficult that is. That's not a good place democratically or economically for people to be. That's the point that well, I'm making. I'll make one solid pr uh, prediction, and I, I don't like prediction because the world is a very uncertain place, but I will make one strong prediction. In my lifetime, the EU collective budget will not be more than 5% of gross product in Europe, whereas governments in Europe are spending anything from 50 to, to 40. So I think that the tax, the, the, the service side of the state will remain very domestic and very local. But let's move on okay. to, because you did talk about uh, social justice and solidarity. And Ireland since 1973 has experienced solidarity within the EU <coughs> in a number of different ways. One, cohesion. Yeah. Cohesion policy <coughs> was a major transfer of the resources of other countries to us, and we're now net contributor, yeah. and it's going back as it should be. Absolutely. A net, being a net contributor is a, success, a sign of a success. Uh, but we've also obviously experienced extraordinary solidarity through Brexit. I mean, for the first time in the history of this state, Ireland was at the stronger side of a negotiating table with the United Kingdom. And that hasn't ever happened before, but it did happen here. Now, what I would like to tease out with you is, firstly, in order, the social Europe that you spoke about, social Europe comes with a cost. In other words, public finance. There has to be a public finance element. In my view, if you don't have public finance, you can have social regulation like equal rights and whatever, but there's a he who pays the piper at some stage. But there's also in Europe today another form of solidarity, and that is <laughs> that uh, given our geographical location, we, we find ourselves in a relatively benign geographical environment. But our partners in the EU, many of them don't, the three Baltics, countries like Finland, uh, that are at the front line of the return of war to Europe. Uh, and how big, so I'm interested in whether or not within Sinn Féin in the party that you, you're looking at what the impact of Ukraine is, because in my view it's tr a transformative moment for our continent. And again, and this is not, I'm not harping, but I just want to, I, I, I just want to, 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 to really drive it home, and that is Sinn Féin MEP voted against a resolution in the European Parliament in December 2020 on the amassing of Russian troops at the Ukraine border. And I don't think that was a correct vote. As a, I, just simply looking at the, at the dynamic of the forces and what was happening. So how far do you think that Ukraine changes things in our continent? Well, I never thought that we would be having conversations with each other or with our young people in the context of war in Europe. I never thought that. Yep. I never thought that we would be actually having conversations about even the prospect of a nuclear uh, incident. And it, but, but here we are. So, um, and you say it changes everything. Um, I think war always does, and, and, and uh, here we are. So, by tradition, as you will know, and we're not unique in this, we never favored or, or embraced a notion of a bipolar world, you know? We had, in the one corner, NATO, and the other, 
the, the Russia, the, the Federation or the USSR and, and, and so on. We, we think what you need to develop is a balanced global uh, community. Um, so sometimes how we vote reflects that, that preoccupation above uh, all others. But let me just be clear. The moment that Vladimir Putin not alone infringed Ukrainian uh, territory and international borders, but went for a full-scale invasion, bombardment, and all of the barbarity that has, been, has followed. The minute he stepped so far outside of international law, there is absolutely no ambiguity in terms of whose side we are on. Sure. Vladimir Putin is the warmonger, he is the lawbreaker, and the Ukrainian people are the victims in this uh, scenario. So the question then arises, well, what do we do? I mean, collectively and then individually as, as the Irish state, how do we best position ourselves in, this, in the face of this awfulness? I think our response on a humanitarian level in terms of refugees, planning deficits notwithstanding, let's not get into that this evening, um, but, but I think we have demonstrated um, a great capacity to afford that kind of international protection, live up to our international uh, obligation. I'm very proud of that. I think that's really important. And we have not gone down the road of caps or limits or, or any of those things. And I think that's to our very great credit. But I would still say to you that uh, I don't buy into the argument that Ukraine has changed everything and therefore Ireland must revise, review, forego, our traditional position as a non-aligned and a military neutral. So, so, so if, if you're asking yeah, me, if, no, if no, the question not, was an, an indirect way of saying, no. has that changed that? The, my answer to you is, is, so, is no. Firstly, there's no pressure on Ireland to change that. We wouldn't meet the entry requirements for NATO yes. anyway. We don't spend enough on defence. But we, as an independent state, and this is, goes back to the sovereignist argument, uh, we have an obligation to have a security policy that is fit for purpose. Mm -hmm. And when I read, uh, again, this was the manifesto, and the thing about manifestos is they're rarely looked at, <laughs> but it was a commitment to oppose the further militarization of the EU. Mm -hmm. Now, what that went on to say was, Ireland should have no part in PESCO. Ireland should have an independent foreign policy, which effectively means we shouldn't meet our treaty obligations to a common foreign and security policy or the, uh, or, uh, the defense and security policy. And that we should withdraw from all the battle groups. Now, the battle groups have never done anything, so we shouldn't worry unduly about them. But there is no doubt that this Europe has got to become more serious about security. Mm -hmm. War has returned to the continent, mm -hmm. but also we have no idea what kind of uh, future US government exists. And so, in a sense, the reality is that Ireland is broadly, now we do, we do tremendous work in peacekeeping. That's but we don't fund our, 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 our armed forces properly. We don't equip them properly. 
We don't pay them properly. And we certainly don't pay them properly. So there is a gap between this no militarization of the EU and the fact that actually as a society, because of geographical location and because we're free riders on the security supplied by others, uh, we don't take it seriously. And I, I'm very struck by that the uh, Red Sea poll 2022, the, the European movement one, did say that 59% of Irish adults said that we needed to have increased involvement in EU defence and security. And that's, that was an important shift in the society, and I think it comes from things like seeing the Russian Navy off the southwest, because they were there because of the cables, and we are, that is our economy, it's not, uh, it's not just something nice to have. So again, if I could tease out with you to take it beyond the, you know, the military neutrality, because that's not under pressure. But what are our obligations to our partners and to ourselves in the security piece? Because I don't think, looking at Irish security policy, that we have one that, can, that stacks up. Okay. So, um, I accept entirely that our, our stance as a military neutral isn't, I'm not proposing that it's under threat from an, an outside other. But I, I, I live in the world of politics and I know that it is and has been very definitely under threat from people within the Irish system who believe it's the wrong position. And that's fine. Um, and that's, that's a, a, a political debate sure. to be had and a political point uh, to be made. But I couldn't disagree uh, more because if we are to ask ourselves, what can we bring to the table as an island nation, as a, a people who were not colonizers, were not empire, but were in fact colonized, as a people who have experienced partition, conflict, and who have also made peace relatively successfully. We haven't finished our, our journey yet. The question arrives for us philosophically and at a point of principle, what do we do with that? And I actually believe we can do a whole lot with that. I am not proposing it, nor have ever proposed that we sit back as spectators or that we wimp out on the absolute need to uphold international law, the UN Charter, and to make a, a, a huge, as big a contribution as we can to international stability, nuclear non-proliferation, and so on. So I think as Europeans, and I've, uh, some, of your, some of our friends in your audience will have heard me make this point before, one of the things I would like to see is rather than neutrals Ireland, perhaps Ukraine, as when they enter the European Union, who's to say they might too enter as a neutral? We don't know that, but it is certainly a possibility. Why are we not recognised? Why are we not given a place in the basic law of the European Union. I know there's convoluted language about the traditions of... Oh, but it's, it's there. But it's not <laughs> explicitly said, and I think it should be. And I think military neutrals should be seen because you've acknowledged our skill in peacekeeping. That's not a coincidental thing. That is because when we go to places beyond, far beyond our own boundaries and borders, Irish troops, Irish people do not carry the type of colonial baggage that a lot of our European partners still do to this day. And I think, so what's the unique, what's the unique thing that Ireland can bring? What's the special thing that Ireland can bring? 
that's it. And then we have to figure out as a union, what does that, what does that string to our defence safety uh, bow, what does that mean? What does that look like? And that's certainly the conversation I would like to have. So, but by the way, we don't fund um, our defence forces and our capacities correctly. I, I don't think there's a debate around that. I think certainly in terms of radar and sur surveillance and so on, and you instant that example of the Russians coming to the coast and fishermen seeing them off. Um, kind of demonstrated no, the fisher, pretty. The fishermen pretty. have nothing to do with it. Well, they, they say differently, <laughs> <But> so <laughs> perhaps you'd have to have them on your podcast to explain the situation. But, uh, so, uh, so you, you talk about Ireland's distinctive contribution, yeah. but when, I mean, the Baltic states aren't colonizers, they were colonized, Finland. It's, so, in other words. And, and that is for them absolutely to decide. And I will, and they are geographically. They're in a different place. They, they f face different exposure. I absolutely accept that. I am, not, I am not preaching our stance as the only stance or the recommended stance for others. I would not be so arrogant or so naive as to do it. But I'm talking about Ireland. And I have to say, I, I saw the, the results of, the, of this particular poll. But I think if you were to track public sentiment uh, over a period, rather than taking a result in, in isolation, I think and I, you will find that actually our attachment as a nation to our stance as military is, is very, very deep. It, but Very deep. But, but it is sufficient. It, it's also deep. It's, there are values involved. There's culture involved, history involved, but it's also geography. History is geography stretched over time. Uh, but I, I don't think our geography is going to change. I don't uh, think we're going to be towed away uh, somewhere else. But, but can I ask you on this, so no PESCO, uh, the peace fund, the, the EU peace facility is being used to uh, purchase lethal weapons. Mm -hmm. Not foreseen, but because Ukraine need lethal weapons because of the invasion. So how does... Is... Is there a danger for Sinn Féin that, you know, there's no, no PESCO, no lethal weapons in any sense? Is there a danger that that becomes a bind that actually doesn't allow Ireland to respond in ways that it should respond in terms of the way the hard geopolitics of the world we live in today? It's a very different world. And I think the next 10 years we're, we're in for a rocky a very uncertain, rocky time in terms of great power competition, et cetera, et cetera. So Ireland is going to, can't be, can't be adrift of that. It has to navigate its way mm -hmm. through the EU strategic compass, et cetera, et cetera. So if I could ask as a final question, um, Sinn Féin has evolved in its policy on the EU very significantly. Do you envisage further evolution. And why I say that is that there is, to me, a number of tensions at the moment between, on the one hand, uh, the no federalization, no militarization, and the reality on the ground of the peace facility and war and all of that. But equally, when it comes to trade agreements, Ireland is very trade dependent. All these, I see a tension between, on the one hand, a rhetoric of sovereignty, but then real stuff on the ground that will make a difference to 
the Irish economy, to Irish prosperity, to Irish lives. So what sort of thinking is going on in Sinn Féin about the kind of new world we find ourselves in? Because it really, in my view, and I'm, you know, I, I, I think we're in a world of shift and shock. Mm -hmm. And none of us sitting here tonight can predict what our world looks like in 10 years' time, maybe not even in five. So is there thinking going on beyond, you know, the, the sort of default mechanisms that become embedded in any party? Mm -hmm. So... Um so yes, of course, of course there is, because we, we live in a, in a world that nothing stands still. I mean, that's the essence of human life. Nothing ever, ever stands still. So in any walk of life, but particularly in political life, you have to be alive to that fact. And of course, you have to have a capacity to develop, to change, to move. But you also have to have a capacity not to lose, not to throw out the baby with the sure. bathwater, and not to entirely lose the run of yourself. And I think it's it's a balance in these things. I mean, you said about um, the, the the supply of lethal weaponry to Ukraine. Ukraine is not relying on Ireland for that. That's not that's not. There's plenty, there's sadly, plenty of lethal weaponry in in in, in the across the globe. And the Ukrainians are standing their ground and they are fighting for their country. And I respect that immensely. The courage of that is immense. But as Irish people, we ask, what, what is our contribution to the global community? We are not a global superpower. We're not a hard power. We're just not, and we shouldn't try to be. The issue for us is, in a world that is uncertain, in a world where you cannot predict in five or 10 years' time where exactly you'll be, the question for us is, What's, what anchors us? What's our space? What do we bring as members of the European Union, as a European nation, that will allow us to make a distinct, and I believe a valuable contribution? So, I mean, Frank Aiken back in the day, I mean, he's still acknowledged to this day of being one of the foremost movers in terms of nuclear non-proliferation. So he came from South Armagh, he came from this small island, but his impact was global and is, is recalled to this day. I don't want to give us delusions of grandiosity or, or, or anything like that, but, but I would say to you, the best kind of Europeans that we can be is the authentic type that is actually true to who we are, our geography, our history, and what we bring uh, to the table. And I think that will be a challenge, by the way, for all of us, and that will require, at times, reassessments realignments, thinking anew, thinking afresh. I want us always to progress. I want us always to be in the business of moving things on and change. And while we do that, that we hold the things that are fundamental to us, whether that's military non-alignment, the social Europe and social justice above obsessive, hyperactive markets and competition winning every single time. To me, as a human being, as well as a political activist and leader, those things really matter. And in the end, when you measure amongst European citizens, not just in Ireland, what are the things that they care about? What attaches the citizenry to this great project of, of advancement? Those things matter if you are going to bring people with you. And in the end, as elected people, 
do you know, we're not part of the, 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 the systemic uh, piece, bar you're elected and then someday maybe, God forbid, you're not elected or there's a, a, a turnaround. But that's a crucial thing for us to do, a crucial thing. And I think as we look to the next 50 years, the next century, it's really, really important that that, that, the, that fundamental democratic piece between the communities here, rural communities, individuals, that that bond is not just there, but is evident, is self-evident. Because I think that only builds the capacity to do the right things. And then we'll debate exactly what those right things are. I think on that note, uh, I will draw the conversation Thank you so much, to a conclusion. It's been a, a very enjoyable, engaging exchange. I want to thank uh, the audience, all of you, for being here and for those who will, uh, who will listen. Uh, and I think if I might end with, um, the EU is destined to disappoint because it is a complex, multi-level, multi-layered political system that stretches from the east to the Atlantic, north to south. And what is remarkable uh, about this EU, and I think it's something again that in Ireland we need to we need to really begin to grapple with. The EU had a very bad eurozone crisis, a disaster, really bad. The only thing that might have been worse is if the currency collapsed, because that would have been a global financial crisis, Mark II. But since Brexit, there is a form of collective power emerging in Europe that is the whole and the parts the ups and downs, and it is much more resilient and robust than uh, a lot of the detractors think. And it is resilient and robust because this part of the world faces a real choice. It's a world of great power competition, the US and, and, the chi and China. And we've seen what happened at the Party Congress, where there's been a, an absolute centralization of power in Xi Jinping. Europe has got to find its way through this more difficult world and also deal with the global south and the poverty, mm -hmm. climate, mm -hmm. all of these things. So for a country like Ireland, a small country, we need geopolitical, geoeconomic anchors. And it looks to me that 100 years after the foundation of the state, that the only available anchors to us are this participation in this wider community of, of, of nations. So it, I think we're entering a very interesting phase book for the EU and for Ireland in the EU. And I think it's time, it would be useful for us all to think about what kind of Ireland and what kind of Europe. Because it is open. There is nothing closed. There is nothing closed uh, about it. But the resilience of the EU really matters to this country. For sure, and we, on that we agree. And can I say, I hope that where we are going is to a united Ireland within the European Union. And that, uh, and that is, if it is the settled will of the, of the Irish of people, it will happen, it won't need a treaty, it'll happen immediately. Uh, absolutely. And Which that's is a, a very good win. thing. Oh no, it's an excellent. It's a very good thing. Thank you. Thank Patrick. you. Thank you all. And thank you, Deputy Minister.